So we're in Revelation Revealed, part five. This is Revelation two, part three. So I want to say a prayer and then introduce this and get right into the meat of it. Father, thank you so much for your faithfulness, for your goodness, for these scriptures we find. I pray, God, that you would bless us. You said there would be a blessing on those that sought out the truths of this book. And I pray, God, that you would bless these wonderful people as we dig into your word. In Jesus' name, everybody say amen. Now, we looked at Ephesus. We're going through the seven churches of Asia Minor. We looked at Ephesus. They had left their first love, right, their first love. We looked at Smyrna, which was the persecuted church. Nothing bad to say about them. They just endured incredible hardships. And so tonight, we're moving on to Pergamos, Pergamos. So let's start with verses 12 and 13 to get right into it. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Let's stop there. This is packed with stuff. This is a doozy right here. Pergamos or Pergamum as it's sometimes called. The names can be used interchangeably. The name for this city means citadel or tower according to some. John Wolverd, who was from Dallas Theological Seminary for years and years, he says the word pergamenu refers to parchment, as in parchment skins or paper, which the people of this town seem to have manufactured quite a bit of and innovated when it, when it came to that. But I tend to go with Donald Gray Barnhouse of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, theologian uh, renowned. He states... Listen to this. The very word Pergamos has in it the same root from which we get our English words for bigamy and polygamy. So per, meaning mixed, uncommon, or perverse, and gamos, meaning marriage. So polygamy. Therefore, Pergamos means, literally, in a transliteration, mixed, marriage or perverse marriage. And I'll, I believe as we get into this, we'll see this is the marriage of a compromising church with a power-hungry state. A compromising church and a power-hungry state, which is just a disastrous recipe. So let's look at the history here. Pagan cults flourished in Pergamos just as they did in Smyrna and all of Asia Minor for that matter. Pergamos had a temple for Zeus, the altar alone for Zeus was over 100 feet by over 100 feet, over 10,000 square feet and it stood 18 feet tall and the whole temple, the temple itself was erected on a cliff some seven or 800 feet above the city, overlooking the city. It was considered to be one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. But when I read that, 
I tend to think to myself, it seems like I've seen 10 or 12 things that are called the seven wonders of the ancient world. You know what I mean? Well, that's what they say. So they also had a temple to uh, Asclepius. I have referred to this deity as Asclepius through the years, but I've heard it over and over in the last couple of weeks as uh, Asclepius, which you've no doubt seen the symbol for this deity if you've noticed anything. The American Medical Association, anything medical has that, that pole with the snake wrapped around it. And it comes from this particular deity, which was the god for healing. Uh, I, I read somewhere that scalpel comes from the name, uh, is derived from this name, uh, Asclepios. Sick people would spend the night in this temple for this god, and, and there were hundreds of non-poisonous snakes that had been released in this temple and they would spend the night on the floor in different places hoping that one of these snakes or more of them would crawl all over them uh, to heal them. The snake on the stick, uh, idea of that snake. And incidentally, the snake on the stick is a throwback to the Old Testament where you remember when the children of Israel were dying from snake bites. And so they were instructed, Moses was, to make a snake, uh, a brass snake, and to lift that thing up and whoever was bitten could look on that, that brass snake and live. And it's, it's such a weird story. It doesn't seem to, it's just out, an outlying story, just bizarre. And Jesus kind of reels it in and makes it, uh, you know, make more sense to us, at least in an application. When he said to Nicodemus in this private meeting, John, it looks like had access to it, John 3, he said, you know, as the snake was lifted up in the wilderness, so the Son of Man, so I have to be lifted up. And if I am lifted up, I'll draw all men unto myself. They can look to me and live. For God so loved the world, same discourse, that he gave his only begotten son. So that snake on the stick, that's a, a, you know, a, a twisting here with uh, Asclepius. Pergamus had a temple also for Athena, the goddess of fertility, and Dionysus, the goddess of wine. However, as we saw in Smyrna, Pergamus also had a temple for emperor worship. According to scholar Robert L. Thomas, quote, despite the city's fascination with idol worship, it was the first in Asia to have a temple solely devoted to the worship of the Roman emperor. The temple was erected in 29 B.C. in honor of Augustus along with the goddess Roma. A second such temple was added during the reign of Trajan. From this point on, Pergamum continued as a leader in the form of Caesar worship. Caesar worship was the most intense here in Pergamus in the entire empire. In other cities, a Christian might be in danger on only one day a year when a pinch of incense had to be burned in worship to the emperor. But in Pergamus, however, Christians were in danger every day of every year of having to do the same thing. And they would have to put this incense out there and say, Kyrios Kaiser, Caesar is Lord, rather than Kyrios Christos, Jesus is Lord. Pergamos, like Smyrna, also had a very large library, 200,000 volumes, all handwritten on 
you know, parchment, a center for learning and academia was in Smyr- uh, in Pergamos. The Pergamum Library was later given to Egypt as a gift from Anthony to Cleopatra. Jesus addresses them. Remember, the way he addresses them is significant. In each letter, he goes back to chapter 1 and he pulls a title out for himself. He addresses them as he who has the sharp two-edged sword. That speaks of the Word of God, Hebrews 4.12. The Word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing, dividing asunder to the joints and marrow, thoughts and intents of the heart. Ephesians 6.17, take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So the Word is confronting the church at Pergamos, and he's saying, I know your works, I know where you dwell, and you dwell where Satan's throne is. Now, we'll deal with that in a moment, but let me just say this. Jesus knows everything about you. He knows where you are. He knows even down to the geography. It's not like he knows theoretically, you know, emotionally where I am. He knows geographically where you are as well, where you dwell. Airline and Daigle, 621, 44, Moody Dixon Road, Gum Swamp Road, Coon Trap Road. Can I get an amen out there? 16, you know, 30, 61, Tiggy Duplessis, Oak Meadow. And, and so he knows where you are. And Jesus knew that Satan had set up shop geographically in their neck of the woods. Satan is not omnipresent. He's there and then he moves and now he's here. He's not still there and here. Now he may leave demons here that influence and do his bidding, but he is a locality when it comes to uh, being, essence. And so he had set up shop in their neck of the woods. Once Alexander the Great, listen to this, conquered Babylon in 323 B.C., the priests of what was known as the mystery religions of Babylon migrated to the east. They didn't just disappear and, and, and their religion died. They migrated, they moved, and they brought their religion with them, and they temporarily made Pergamos their headquarters for a long time, but temporary in, in the big picture. In other words, it became the headquarters, the throne of Satan from where he ruled and reigned. He's called the God of this world in your Bible. And he had a headquarters where his commands were given out and where he operated from. Now, eventually, and I think we'll see this as we get deeper and deeper into the book of Revelation, that headquarters would move to Rome. But at the time of this writing, it's in Pergamos. The mystery religions of Babylon started way back in your Bible. We looked at some of this in our journey through Genesis, way back with Nimrod. You remember that? I want to read this, Genesis 9, verse 8. Cush begot Nimrod, who began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord, 
and the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Babel, Erech, Achad, Kalna, in the land of Shinar. From the land he went up, he went to Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ur, Kila, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kila. That is the principal city. Interestingly, and I mentioned this in our journey through Genesis, scholars say Nimrod is another name for Zeus. Pergamus had a temple to Zeus. The name Nimrod means rebellion. And Nimrod was the earthly head of a satanically led rebellion against the one true and living God. And it was religious, this rebellion, religious in nature. Nimrod was a hunter, not just of animals, but he was a hunter of men. Hunters used camouflage, strategy, cunning, trickery, traps to catch their prey. And Nimrod was no different. He got his tricks of the trade from the devil himself, the one who had deceived Eve, had tricked her. 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. The devil is a liar. Jesus said it, a deceiver. He observes, he sets traps, he tricks, he's stealthy, he's clever. Nimrod led the first rebellion after the flood. The name Nimrod, some scholars say, is not even a name. It's just a description of this man's character, rebellious. As if the writer in Genesis did not want to give him the luxury of his real name being mentioned. He was an antichrist. You know, John would say, there are many antichrists. Now we're going to see an antichrist, singular in Revelation 13, who is the antichrist. But Nimrod was an antichrist. And some scholars equate Nimrod to ancient Gilgamesh and that flood story. Some scholars equate him to Egypt's legendary Horus. We do know this. He was a conqueror, a tyrant, the world's first monarch, one who led a rebellion against the God who flooded the earth, who headed up a religious system. Again, his rebellion took the, the form, the guise of religion. Religion became a cloak. For his rebellion. Remember when Jesus said to the Pharisees, You've got a cloak of religion, cloaking, covering up your sin? It was a false religion, like Cain had, an antichrist. The rabbis, they've got vivid imaginations, but I do like to read after them, and I think it's interesting what they have to say. The rabbis, ancient rabbinical tradition says Nimrod claimed the God of the flood was evil. And so Nimrod led a revolt against him. Nimrod demanded loyalty from his subjects, employed astrologers, and by arms and or by arts, he seized control of much of humanity. By arms, meaning by force, or by arts, meaning by demonic influence, magic, etc. He was a descendant of Ham, which on the surface of, uh, you've got this Noah's prophetic curse where those descendants cursed be Canaan would be subject to the other lines so it looks as if to preempt this Nimrod began dominating the other descendants of Noah the rabbis say one of his most loyal subjects I mentioned this in journey through Genesis it's just interesting to me I'm throwing it out there for you one of his most loyal subjects Nimrod was a man named Terah 
Nimrod was afraid of the Genesis 3.15 promise, a prophecy that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And the rabbis claimed that a bright star began to shine over Shinar. And his astrologers began to study it. He became paranoid. And he thought the seed of the woman was about to be born. This was some kind of sign. And so the rabbis say this, that Nimrod began to kill the newborn sons in his kingdom. This goes back before Jesus and his star. But here you have, again, a a satanically inspired genocide, brother killing brother like Cain killing Abel, and on and on it goes. The bottom line is this, Terah had a son, hid him from his king, the rabbis say, and that son was Abram who became Abraham. It's just fascinating interaction. And Nimrod got to work religiously building the Tower of Babel, a man-made, satanically inspired system whereby man could save himself if God ever flooded the earth again. Totally in rebellion against God because God says spread out and fill up the earth. They all gathered together in the plain of Shinar and built this under Nimrod's employ. We see it in Genesis, you, you, you know, and I'm, I'm spending a little time here. We're going to move on. It's relevant, though. The whole earth had one language, one speech, you know, and they said, let us make bricks and build us a city, a tower whose top is to the heavens, make a name for ourselves. One language, one speech. They had a culture. They had systems, processes, a full-blown religion, trying to save themselves without God by their own works. That's going to come back into play in Pergamos trying to save themselves without God by their own works. That was the purpose of that tower. And remarkably, Nimrod, like I mentioned, is not even probably his name, his real name. So so these people never got this great name they were after. God disrupted their plan, their scheme, and and that Tower of Babel was cut short. But the roots of the rebellion took hold in that geographical location on the plain of Shinar in Babylon. And that cry of self over God. My word, my will over God's word and God's will. It still rings out to this day. And when Antichrist rises on the scene and the whole world wonders after this beast and this system and he claims to be God in Jerusalem in a rebuilt third Jewish temple, the devil will think he won. He will believe that he has made for himself a name. But Revelation says, alas, Babylon, it's going to fall again. He has not made a name for himself. He will never make a name for himself. He will never be higher than the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That old song says, kings and kingdoms will all pass away, but there's something about that name, the name of Jesus. It's an epic story, y'all. And here in the book of Revelation, we still are learning from the book of Genesis. Back to Pergamos. The pressure to cave in to emperor worship was enormous. There was a famous martyr, Antipas, who championed fidelity to the name of the Lord in the face of, of the throne of Satan that's mentioned. And speaking of names, Jesus saw their struggle and he knew Antipas by name, who history says was roasted in a brass bull that was placed over fire, roasted alive, and they could hear him, history says, singing and 
and offering praises to God as he drew his last breaths in that hideous situation. Incidentally, anytime you see the name of the Lord mentioned in the Bible, let me just say this, it's always singular. It's always, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. It's always singular. And interestingly, Jesus mentioned this one guy's one name, Antipas. The name means against all. And the reason he was mentioned was because he had held fast to God's one name, singular. He didn't say Kaiser, Kyrios Kaiser. He said Kyrios Christos. So Jesus is saying, you stay true to acknowledging my name and don't think for a second that I don't know yours as well. I'm telling somebody here tonight, Jesus knows your name. Jesus knows your name. Jesus had said in Matthew 10, 22, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father. But the story doesn't end here. The one with the two-edged sword coming out of his mouth starts to lay down a stern, strong, stout rebuke. Look at verses 14 and 15. Are you with me? You with me? It's 8.01. I know the clock. I know the drill. Verse 14. But I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus, you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Now, we've seen the Nicolaitans before, back in verse 6 with Ephesus. The church at Ephesus hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Jesus said he hated their deeds too. Our sweet, loving Jesus hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. He didn't hate the Nicolaitans. He hated their deeds. So we've gone from deeds in Ephesus to doctrine in Pergamos, from practice in Ephesus to a systematic construct as to why they believe and behave in the way that they do in Pergamon. So whatever the Nicolaitans taught, According to this, it seems to be, would it not, equated, whatever they taught seems to be equated with what Balaam taught. And again, Jesus hated it. And it's connected to beliefs and behaviors centered around idolatry and immorality. Now, to grasp all of this, and I mentioned at the very beginning of this Genesis study, the reason a lot of people miss so much in Genesis is because you have to have a thorough understanding of the Old Testament. I mean, you've at least got to have, you know, a surface understanding, but you really need to dive even deeper than that because everything, you know, out of the 404 verses in Revelation, there's 800 plus references back to the Old Testament. And so here's one of those references to the Old Testament. You've got to understand something about Balaam. Now, he was arguably originally a follower of the Lord God, Yahweh, Jehovah. In Numbers 22, 18, he called Yahweh his God. 
In Numbers 23, 4, he offered acceptable sacrifices to God. In Numbers 24, 17, as the Spirit of the Lord was upon him, he prophesied about the coming of Jesus Christ. He said, there shall come a star out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. That's Balaam. He famously stated in Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. So this guy has a Jehovah connection. Not everyone who teaches false doctrine knows or has ever known the real, the truth. But if you trace the roots of heresy and error historically back, you will usually find someone who for whatever reason knew the truth and exchanged it for a lie. Romans 1.25, exchanged the truth of God for a lie. This is what our man Balaam did, who's equated with the Nicolaitans. We're not sure who the Nicolaitans are, but if we could find out what Balaam is all about, and later in the next church, as we get down into the churches, we'll see Jezebel, and she's in the same group. There's a trio, Nicolaitans, Balaam, Jezebel. If we can understand Balaam, Jezebel, then we've got an understanding of the Nicolaitans. This is what Balaam did. He exchanged the truth of God for a lie. He found that there was less money to be made by telling the truth and more money to be made in telling people what they wanted to hear. Moolah, moolah cha-ching. Peter said of Balaam in 2 Peter 2, Verse 15, they have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages, the money, of unrighteousness. Balaam forsook the right way. He knew better, but the pay was better on the other side, on the side of error. Balaam sold out to the money, the payoff of Balak the king of Moab, for the M-O-N-E-Y. Jude 11 calls it the error of Balaam for profit. He was a prophet for profit. Balak hired Balaam to prophesy against God's people. And it's you can go look it up, Numbers 22, big long passage here, Numbers 22. And in essence, what happened was, he said, I need you to curse the people of God. Now, you know, he ended up trying, and he, he couldn't do it. And he said, how can I, I just can't do it. How can I curse what God's blessed? The, the rest of the story is there was an angel that his donkey saw before he ever saw. There was an angel with a flaming sword standing there ready to kill Balaam had he done what Balak wanted him to do. So when he said, how can I curse that which God's blessed? He could have done it. He could have said, you know, cursed be Israel. But he wasn't about to do it when there's an angel standing there, 10-foot angel, you know, whatever, with, with a flaming sword, like, ready to kill. And the donkey's, like, backing up, and he's, like, beating the donkey. And finally, the, remember the donkey turns around to him and says, hold on a second, fella, you know. 
I, I don't know if it was like tongues and interpretation. Did he speak donkey language? Like, and then like he understood by interpretation what it was. Or was it a miracle and the donkey started talking in Hebrew or whatever and, and he got it? I don't know. I don't know how that worked, but that donkey talked and said, Why are you beating me? Can't you see what's up? And then he sees this angel. And so then he goes back and tells Bela, I, I can't do that. I've given you money. But you don't have a flaming sword in my face. No, I can't curse what God's already blessed. And, and, you know, we've seen this with Saul, like, you know, remember when the Lord struck down Saul? So what, what Balaam was trying to do with, with money and, and cursing, pronouncing a curse, and he, but he couldn't do that. What he did was he, he told the king, he said, I'll tell you what you do. You get your Moabite, your pretty Moabite, you get your prettiest Moabite women. And, and I want you to set up over there by Israel's camp. And I could get really graphic. I don't want to get graphic. But he's like, and you, you seduce those, the men of Israel to commit fornication. You, you get your girls to seduce them. Do what they got to do to seduce them. And then once you've done that, have them offer sacrifices to those girls' gods. I mean, he set up, you know, strip joints and brothels and what, that's the idea right there at Israel's camp. And you know what? They fell for it. He got them to bow down and, and not only commit adultery physically, but to spiritually commit adultery. And that same spirit was at work in the early church. I'm out of time, but that same spirit was at work in the early church. What the devil could not do in Smyrna through persecution, the blood of the martyrs became the seed of the church. He started doing by infiltrating the church with the paganism of the culture. When the church let down the wall and let the paganism into the church, it weakened the church. It brought them down in the same way that Balaam couldn't curse them. But in that little scheme, it brought Israel into bondage. And the same thing was working in that early church. And as we've seen, these, these, these churches, they have something to say for us. To, he that has ears to hear, let him hear what the church has to, what the Spirit of the Lord has to say. We can't let this culture tell us what we believe and how we act and behave and how we do church. We've got to do church the way that the one with the sword coming out of his mouth declares that we should do church, amen? We should live our lives in such a way that the one with the two-edged sword coming out of his mouth says, well done, good and faithful servant. Not I'm going to come and listen, and, and I'm done, and oh my goodness, I just scratched the surface. I wanted to finish this church. But, but listen to this. It's just, it's just incredible to me that you've got this, stand with me. You've got this church that's at, at an infancy stage, even all those years ago. So powerful, man. The church had exploded onto the scene. And so the, the satanically, you've got people being wiped out, people being killed, 
and, and the devil's losing. He's losing. There's thousands and hundreds of thousands, if not millions of converts at this time. So he says, I've got to pervert this thing. I've got to take the punch out of it. I've got to take the power out of it. So I'll marry. There'll be a perverse marriage of the world and the church. And I'll make it official. It'll be from the government. And you're going to see this from the edict of toleration under Constantine's leadership. And then later in 325, it turns into a, a few years later, it turns into a demand. It goes from where you're, it's illegal to be a Christian to where it's illegal to not be a Christian. But it's Christianity by coercion, by duress, pressure. And it's not true conversion. It's a perversion of Christianity. And the devil, I'm just going to tell you, to this day has done so much harm with this strategy. In the same way that Nimrod led a revolt, that religious system has infiltrated from that day to this our world and the church and let me just ask you is there any wonder there's 33 34,000 denominations everybody claims to be right nobody knows what's the authority how do I know where do we go we try to do apostolic succession we looked at creeds and church councils and we try to find we try to find the truth but it's so the truth is so maligned by the religious world. Are you with me? You hear what I'm saying? But I'm going to tell you something. There's a church that's the mystical body of Christ. There is a remnant. I just want to make sure I'm in that remnant. You know what I mean? I'm willing to lay aside everything, man. Like Just lay it all down. Empty my truth bucket and just pick up what the Lord shows me. That's true. I've done it before. I'm, I'm willing to do it again. Like, what is truth? That's what these people were having to deal with. And the Lord, talk about eternal security. Let me just close with this. This doesn't sound like unconditional eternal security, meaning once saved, always saved. I believe in the security of the believer. But unconditional eternal security, no matter what I do or don't do, I'm saved regardless. Listen what the one with the sword coming out of his mouth said, repent or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Ephesus fought it. Pergamus embraced it. And he said, you better fight. You better Overcome to him who overcomes, I'll get him. I'll give him the hidden manna to eat. Where there you go, some challenging words, wouldn't you say? Pergamus. This will be the church. I'm giving you the years. Let me give you the years on this one. This will be the church from 312 A.D. to five. 90 A.D. I believe it's under Gregory the First that you really have a shift 
Some call him a first pope, per se. But I'm just going to tell you something. God wants to, uh, God wants to have a revival in this last day. And so out of many nations and tribes and tongues, people that have called on the name of Jesus and had all kind of barnacles of false doctrine and teaching attached to them, Nicolaitans, Balaamites, Jezebel, all kind of junk hanging on to them. God is wanting to shave that stuff off and have for himself a bride that is without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. And when the eastern sky splits, there's a yearning in the heart of those. They've suffered persecution, but they've stayed faithful to the name. They've stayed true. They've done the hard work fighting. They've suffered because of it, but they've not embraced this world. They said, this world's not our home. I'm just a pilgrim passing through. I refuse to put my roots deep here because my home is up there with my eternal Savior forever and ever. Can you lift your hands to him right now? Jesus, it's your breath in our lungs, and that's why we give you our praise. God, we're not judging anybody else. We're looking to ourselves. It's time for judgment to begin at the house of God. I'm going to look to myself. God, if there's any evil, wicked way in me, cleanse it. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Lord. 